Dakota. And I'm Dylan. And welcome to the Queer History Podcast. Today we're talking about the Upstairs Lounge Fire. Until the terrible Pulse shooting in June 2016, the deadliest attack on gay people was the Upstairs Lounge Fire in New Orleans in 1973. In 1973, the gay rights movement was still in its infancy. The Stonewall Riots, often considered the beginning of the gay rights movement, had only happened four years earlier. The Upstairs Lounge was a gay bar in the French Quarter of New Orleans. It was near several bars. In fact, it was above the Jimani Bar, which is still open today. It was an upstairs bar furnished with red Victorian-looking patterns, hanging curtains, a bar room, a lounge, and a theater, where they would have drag shows and short plays. One of the plays was called Egad, What a Cad, was put on in 1971. And I was looking at pictures of the bar, and it just seemed like a really fun place. Like, it was very, it looked very classy, and it had a lot of dark wood and like the, the the wallpaper was this dark red velvet. It looked really nice and there was a lot of pictures of people in drag. It looked so fun. I can't believe they had drag shows back in 1971. Not that like drag is like this modern thing. I don't know, but it's, it was dangerous back then and I mean it is now too, I guess, but it's, it's very brave, I think. Truly. On the night of the fire, June 24th, 1973, It was towards the end of Pride Month on the fourth anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. It was dollar draft night in the upstairs lounge. People were sitting around the piano singing songs like United We Stand by the Brotherhood of Man, which is a very uplifting song that was popular in the upstairs lounge. There was a bit of a disturbance earlier in the night when a young man was thrown out of the bar. That night, the... That night, the Metropolitan Community Church, a church created to be pro-LGBT, was holding service in the bar. More than 60 people were in the bar. Early that night, around 8 o'clock, the buzzer began going off, signaling to the bar that somebody wanted to come up. The bartender, Douglas Rasmussen, called Buddy, thinking it was a taxi, asked one of the regular customers to open the door. The stairs leading up to the bar were on fire. And when the door opened, the updraft caused the fire to shoot through the doorway, immediately setting the walls on fire. Some people reported smelling lighter fluid. The bartender led a group of 20 customers out through the back before the fire trapped the rest of the patrons by the bar. Many of the patrons made their way to the windows, but found that there were bars covering them. Some of the smaller people Excuse me. Some of the smaller people could make their way through the bars, but most could not. This building wasn't made for a fire. Bars on the windows, auto-locking doors just seemed very, you know, set up for disaster. Bill Larson, the pastor of the Metropolitan Community Church, attempted to make his way out the window, but became trapped and he burned to death. His body was visible from the street for hours afterward, and some of the most horrifying images of the night are of Larson. One of the bar's patrons, Dwayne George Mitchell, had actually followed the bartender, Buddy, out of the bar safely, but he learned that his boyfriend, Louis Horace Broussard, was still trapped. He went back in to try and save him, but they both died. When they were found, their bodies were found fused together. Dwayne George Mitchell had two sons who were waiting for him to come and pick them up at a movie, not knowing he had died in the fire. They only learned he was gay after his death. 
As adults, though, they said they were proud of their dad's heroic actions. The firefighters came and quickly put out the fire. However, the fire had spread so quickly that 29 people had died in the fire, and three more would die from their injuries. It was the deadliest fire in New Orleans history. The police response was casual and defeatist immediately. The police talked about how it would be a difficult case to solve, and how difficult it would be to even identify the bodies. One police officer described the difficulty of identifying the less severely burned victims in the bar by their driver's license, saying, quote, We don't even know if these papers belong to the people we found them on. Some thieves hung out there, and you know this was a queer bar. Though this is horribly phrased, it was pretty common for closeted men to carry fake IDs when they went to gay bars, since they were routinely raided by the police, like the raid that kicked off the Stonewall riots, and the men wanted to protect their identities so they wouldn't be outed to the public. When police interviewed the surviving victims, it became clear that this was an arson. A can of lighter fluid was found on the stairwell. A nearby shop had sold a can of lighter fluid earlier that day, but the person who bought it was never identified. The only real suspect in the case was the young man who had been thrown out of the bar earlier on that night of the fire. His name was Roger Nunez. He was thrown out of, out after having a fight with another patron. The man he had had a fight with survived the fire and said that he heard him say, I'm going to burn this place down as he was thrown out. The police were unable to locate Nunez for months. And when they did, he denied any connection to the fire. Without any hard evidence, they let him go. Nunez committed suicide soon after. Even though 32 people died, there was very little news coverage. The Louisiana governor, Edwin Edwards, never mentioned it, and neither did the mayor of New Orleans, Moon Landrieu. In fact, he remained on his vacation. There was very little news coverage, and even the news that did report on the fire often glossed over the fact that it was a gay bar. However, many locals were aware of what the upstairs lounge was and who the victims were. And on a local radio station, one radio host joked, what do we bury them in? To which the answer was, fruit jars. When the newspaper published a list of the victims of the arson, those people were publicly outed, since the locals knew it was a gay bar. One of the men who survived the initial fire received a call while he was in Charity Hospital's burn unit. He was a school teacher, and the call was from his school, telling him they had learned that he was in the fire and that he was fired. He died of his injuries only a few days later. Other men who had made it out of the bar without major injury had to go on with life, not letting their family, friends, and co-workers know they had seen their friends burned to death hours earlier. God, I can't even imagine that. Like, you go to a bar, you this horrible thing happens that's going to change your whole life, and on Monday, you have to go to work, and you can't talk about it, and you have to not be suspicious, not be upset, because if anyone finds out, you're fired, and your reputation is ruined, and maybe your family leaves you. It's terrible. It's just awful. Like, and that's, oh, it, the fruit jar comment, and... Ugh. Ugh. And it's, it's weird, because I... A couple months ago, I would have said, this doesn't happen anymore. And it's just scary to see, to see with the recent Pulse shooting and to see with uh, the comments coming from the Trump campaign, from the supporters, some of the, the more 
the more intense supporters that these these uh, these feelings still exist, and they're in smaller and smaller pockets, but they still exist. Yeah, you, like you think it's over, but you never know. You know. <sighs> Church after church refused to hold a service for the victims. Catholic, Lutheran, and Baptist churches refused to hold services. Finally, an Episcopal father, Bill Richardson, who seemed to have been an LGBT advocate later in life, as well as a really great person, organized a prayer service to be held in, the ch- in his church. Afterward, he was sent hate mail for allowing a prayer service for the victims, and he was later punished by his bishop. Many of the survivors of the fire or people who lost a romantic partner or friend in the fire, felt that they couldn't speak about it. Since there were no protections for LGBT people, they could easily lose their job or their housing um, or their friends and family if it was discovered they were gay. Some of the victims' bodies were never claimed by their families, and others were never identified at all. The upstairs lounge fire is still relatively unknown. Though it did receive some press after the Pulse shooting since it was the previous deadliest attack aimed at gay people in U.S. history. Today, there is a memorial placard embedded into the ground where the entrance to the upstairs lounge used to be. Wow. So, not a very fun episode. No, it's... Oh, I'm looking at the pictures and it's like... Ugh. Yeah, some of the pictures are so disturbing that actually I had a hard time sleeping when I was researching... Um, I wouldn't recommend any anyone listening to look them up unless you're really prepared for what you're going to see. It's it's very, very disturbing. Um, the, the reverend, I think, is the some of the most disturbing pictures. And uh, although the, the pictures of it before it burned down are actually very, like, it seems like a, such a, like a fun place and, and, and a positive place. Not like, um, I feel like there were some that were just places to meet people to have sex. And this one seemed like a big, a community. Yeah. It, like that's the thing that gets me with bars. Like sometimes there can be like this negative idea of going out to the bars, but for the gay community, it's always been like this safe space that it's, I think bars are just like so uniquely tied to, uh, queers in general as this like other place where you can just be yourself and yeah and I appeared like it I feel like it's something that a lot of uh, non-queer people don't understand because it seems like seedy it seems like like um just just sort of a negative place that you're a little embarrassed to go but I feel like for queer people it's often a sense of community and that is a place that yeah, again, it's so connected to our history. It's it's what started the riots, and it was just like a safe place to be and a excuse to be in a place. Like you you went there for a drink, and so you had this little this little haven that you could hide out in. And then later later after the Stonewall riots, you didn't need to hide anymore. Absolutely, and it it makes me think of the Pulse shooting too, and how that safe space was so violated, like. Yeah, I told you. I told you before we started recording about how I went to a gay club, and it was the first time I had went since after the pole shooting. They checked me for weapons, and they had me. Um, they put a metal detector over me and my girlfriend to try and see if we if we had anything on us. And you know, I'm I'm glad they did, but it was it was a, a dark moment before a fun night. So, um, 
But I think the reason, part of the reason this one has not become a rallying cry or a, a sort of a, a iconic thing that has happened in the gay community and in gay history is it's not a very clean story. The investigation shows clear discrimination, but it it's not a clear hate crime. It seemed to be, you know, because we don't know who exactly who did it, it's not solved. And, you know, even if, if it was Roger Nunez, which I think, I think that seems reasonable. It was a, a personal fight that became very violent. It was the rash actions of one, of one man, not who was not trying to hurt specifically gay people, as far as we know. So it's it's not a clean narrative the way that the pole shooting is. Yeah, and uh, and I, I guess it's heartening to to just think about the to compare the responses as well. I mean, you did have yeah. like people on the conservative side saying, "Oh, we don't know whether the pole shooting was a hate crime and things like that." But you also had um, just this like immense um, outcry against guns and against like in all the these different fundraisers, the, the families of the victims. It's And so many people going to donate blood and powerful politicians speaking out against it and speaking out against hate crimes. Definitely a much better response, which is a, you know, a horrible silver lining, but it's not nothing. All right. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Our music is from Liv Slingerland, who you can find on SoundCloud or Facebook.